This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Shoeshine columnist Maria Slade hates eating her words, but a new report on what drives rental prices is forcing her to chew on a few this week. Maria, what words are you having to eat? You may recall that a few months ago I predicted that the non-deductibility of mortgage interest costs policy that the the government has brought in was going to lead to a polarising of the rental market. We were going to end up with the cashed up landlords at one end and the social housing providers at the other and the mums and dads in the middle were going to get squeezed out uh, because it's simply becoming unaffordable for them without this deduction. And... uh, That, I think, still is happening, but uh, whether it's actually going to have an effect on the rents that, uh, you know, renters have to pay, uh, well, there's been this report that's come out from Treasury that's just completely blown my theory. (laughs) Oh, right. So what did the Treasury report show about rent prices? It's a very interesting report because you would think with all the sort of hand-wringing there is about rental costs in this country that there'd be more research on what drives them, but there actually isn't. So so it's a pretty important piece of work that's been done. And what they've found is that the biggest drivers of rental prices are wages and housing supply. And mortgage interest rates actually were a bit player. They really had no effect. And so wages and rents have risen, risen pretty much in tandem. And the, the, the number of houses available for rent are a much bigger factor. And so the significance of this is the landlords are all saying, right, well, you know, we're going to have to sell up. Um, we can't afford to be in the rental market. But, it, but in actual fact, what has happened over the last 20 years or so is that while interest rates have been very low, you might have thought that would float through to rents. It didn't. What happened was house prices went up because lots of cheap money available, restricted housing supply is what Treasury is saying. And so that is a, that is a far greater driver of what happens than um, their interest costs. And so they're saying now there's no evidence that if they can't deduct mortgage interest, they are going to, um, you know, that will flow through to, to rental prices. In actual fact, probably w- what would happen is if they feel they need to sell up their homes because they can't afford to keep them, uh, that'll just drive the, the price of houses down. It won't have an effect on the rents mm-hmm. that are charged. And you might say, okay, so there's fewer rental houses as well uh, for every one less rental house there's probably one less renter because they might have bought a house so the treasury is saying nope nothing to see here it's not going to affect it mm-hmm. and that's kind of the opposite from what uh, landlord representative groups had been saying isn't it Absolutely, yes. They are all, um, you know, crying foul, saying, you know, this is going to force us out of the market. There's going to be fewer rentals. It is interesting to have a look at the sentiment at the moment. There is no evidence that they're actually holus bolus selling up. All the surveys at the moment are showing that they're kind of sitting on their hands. They're, they are a much a smaller proportion of the market now than they were. At the peak, um, landlords with mortgages were about 30% of the market and now they're only about 21%. So they're not buying new houses, but there's no evidence that they're selling up the existing ones. And there is a theory that they're pretty much just sitting on their hands and waiting to see what happens in October, because of course the national government has, uh, well the national party has pledged to uh, remove the policy if they become the government. Uh, Also the market's at the bottom at the moment, the policy hasn't been fully implemented, it's being phased in. So yeah, it could be just a holding pattern for landlords at the moment. 
So do we actually have enough houses at the moment? That is a very good question. And I spoke to um, an analyst from the Child Poverty Action Group who has done his own figures on how low-income households are affected because the figures Treasury used were an average. Uh, interestingly, while it shows that wages and um, uh, rents have gone up in tandem and people are not actually paying a greater proportion of their incomes on rent than they used to, that's not true for lower-income people. And this analyst is saying there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. One are that old housing stock are being knocked down and 10 townhouses are being built in their place and those townhouses are a lot more expensive to rent. So the supply of cheap rental stock is not there. The government's taken out quite a bit of it for emergency housing. That's had an effect. Um, the government's emergency housing grants have also bid rents up a bit. And this analyst is saying the Treasury argument that it's all about flexibility of land supply. We just need, um, you know, that we need more flexible zoning so we can build and fill. He said it's becoming a bit of a tired argument and he actually believes there's enough houses in Auckland now, in fact probably too many, and that is being reflected in the fact that rents are dropping in Auckland. Uh, but also what he says is what we need is to figure out how to build more appropriately, how to build houses more cheaply so that people at the lower end can actually afford them. So make of that what you will. But I think, you know, my conclusion out of all of this is um, the landlords are OK uh, and, you know, rents are probably not going to skyrocket as a result of the current policy settings. Maria, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Tim O'Donoghue has been a pharmacist for over 30 years in New Zealand and overseas, and in the course of doing so has found himself listening to hundreds, maybe thousands of customers with annoying and often embarrassing medical issues needing over-the-counter relief. He now has a product for one of the most common of these and is seeking capital to launch the product into the US and other offshore markets. Tim joins me now, and Tim, let's talk about that embarrassing health issue that has sparked this journey. What have you heard about it over the years? Well, this is itchy butts and hemorrhoids, and it's a topic that everybody has and no one wants to talk about it. The Mayo Clinic in New York uh, says that 75% of all adults have this problem on off their whole lives. And in pharmacies, we now see men coming in to talk about erectile dysfunction without looking one way or the other to see who's listening. Uh, women have been ahead of it for years, happy to talk about thrush at the counter. But when it comes to talking about your backside, it seems to be a bridge too far. It's just too embarrassing for people, partly because there's a, a widely held belief that they're the only one with the problem. Very amazed to find out that it's a really common thing. And it's partly to do with the solutions on offer where the big pharma have chosen products and presentations and names that really just make this already embarrassing uh, experience worse. Products such as Anasol, Proctocel, Preparation H, Rectinol, the list goes on. It's, it's, it really hasn't helped anybody speak freely about it to uh, either health professionals or even family and friends. Right. So hemorrhoids is the is the problem, and it's very, very common, as you say. You've come up with a way of allowing people to request a preparation that doesn't have an embarrassing name. Yeah, that's right. In fact, th this first product, uh, that we, we have a range of products for self-care. That's our, that's our mission in, in, in life, letting people treat themselves. So it's partly formulating products that are really effective but don't require a prescription 
or further still don't even require you'd have to go into the pharmacy to get it just in this particular problem people are looking for a lot of discretion uh, and this is where direct to consumer um, models are fantastic but this product was designed in conjunction with the consumer so an ultimate consumer driven product where over a period of years um, I was able to work with them until we had a product that everybody found was really successful. It was presented a certain way and it had a name that everybody liked. Now, the name actually comes from the Latin for uh, without steroid, a steroid, and it's asteroid. And that is a name that people have loved. It's a little bit of a play on the colloquialism of the anatomy, but also of the medical problem. And nobody minds a product in their plastic bag at the airport called asteroid, it's just something flying through the sky, compared to something that says anusol. And, and this is something that we worked with with the customer. Right. So let's just go back to the beginning of establishing the company. You were obviously a pharmacist. You've heard these things. You've made your own preparations over the years, I understand. When did you decide to make this an actual export business, which is what you're trying to do here? Well, yeah, the product had been designed for some years and we were selling them in our pharmacies in the UK where you're allowed to sell a product that you made. And it was really the customer that was urging us, take this to market. Uh, we, would, we, we would buy you. you know, there were just so many glowing reports about it. But I had had a, a, a background in pharma and big pharma in the early part of my career. And I knew that it was going to take a great deal of effort and I'm a Kiwi, and I really like the idea that I would hold on and launch the product from New Zealand. So there have been a, practically all that time has been preparing to do this um, because I know this is a David and Goliath situation. A Kiwi company, a pharma company, a new one, going up against a uh, big pharma in the US is uh, something that you really have to do a lot of preparation to get ready for. And uh, we decided finally we launched this product um, in New Zealand just around lockdown time, so that was a little unfortunate. Um, and we've had a great response ever since. Uh, in the meantime, we've been working our way through all the regulatory in Australia, and of course that behemoth, the, the FDA in the, in the US, and we've been successful in Australia, and we're only three months away from um, finishing off with approval in the US. So we're really excited about that. You are looking for some capital. Um, now yep. tell us about where your capital, how much are you looking to raise? Where are you looking to raise it from? Well, the hard work has actually already been done for, for where you would normally be looking to uh, spend at this stage. We've already done the investment in that. A lot of it was uh, intellectual work. We are raising $2 million to cover the next two years. That is to finish off the FDA work and to set up and sell the first batch of uh, asteroid into the United States using the e-commerce model and, and the, the 3PL distribution. And we have 500,000 of that already. So we're now seeking another 1.5 to cover that first two years. After that, there is a lot of logical extensions and possibilities, but we'd be absolutely delighted to achieve those. Um, there'll be a break even at year two, actually. And for a New Zealand pharmaceutical company to do that in two years uh, is quite remarkable, and we know it's very achievable. The other thing that's interesting about it is it's not a matter of you just 
boxing up a whole lot of this product and sending it over. You are looking at setting up a platform, a self-care pharmacy platform in the States. Now, can you just tell us about this platform and why it doesn't compete? You're saying in there it doesn't compete with the Boots and the Walmart and all that kind of thing. It's quite different. It is quite different. So that's that'll be called Neocura, which is a play on Latin for new care. And this is really... Um, acknowledging the upswing in self-care that's especially in the US that that is coming all the research says that um, the, the, the consumers want to be able to look after themselves a lot more in, in the medical space particularly so health techs will not be a customer facing name it'll be Neocura and as part of the e-commerce offerings there will be support that goes with um, say, for example, if we, we've got a number of products, but we'll talk about Asteroid in this case uh, is the, the Challenger product in the first instance. You would also be able to, as part of the funnels, click on and, and hear the pharmacist speak about, you know, about hemorrhoids. Hey, you're normal. Three out of four people have this problem. And here's some other things that you could do. So the Neocura part of it is a, is educational platform and starting to set up the platform for the future uh, for the point where the pharmaceutical company could be um, running itself, um, other parts of the the process could be run by health techs. So it may get to a point where we're not using the 3PL in the same way, for instance. So that's where Neocura fits in. The, the consumer will see Neocura products uh, on the labels and the other products that follow will also say Neocura. The reason we're not competing with, say, CVS, the pharmacy chain and the US is because they are selling all kinds of things from a pharmacy. In this case, what you're doing is buying the product directly from the designers, the pharmaceutical company that's making it, with the opportunity to interact with the uh, health information. For example, if you're talking about hemorrhoids or an itchy butt, the, there's things you can do around um, the way you go to the toilet, the, the diet you have, the exercise you have, and all that can go with the product. So that's when Yokura fits in. Right. Um, you talked about the FDA approval. Obviously, with a product like that, like this, um, FDA approval is critical. Are you 100% assured of getting approval? Yep. We are. So we've spent the last three years working on this uh, and working with a consultancy firm now also who include uh, former FDA employees who have been right at the top and so we have it in writing that this is a formality from here. Right. Okay. And that has been a long process, obviously, a very thorough... Yeah, that's like doing a jigsaw puzzle with the face down. It's 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 a complex process, the FDA. Right. So, Tim, I mean, it's it seems a bit like a no-brainer um, product with a, a market, certainly a market. <laughs> what are the risks? Are there any risks to investing in this, in this venture? Well, the, I think the risks really are around the, the e-commerce, the cut-through. Um, certainly the product being a consumer-driven product in the first place I don't think there's any risk of you know the product not being being received favourably. It's really the risk is around getting to people, and we've got some great insights that we're sharing with OMG already. Because when we we um, launched this product in, in New Zealand, we also ran a one-year campaign, um, a, a digital marketing campaign. It was a very simple one, but we really wanted to prove for ourselves that people were interested in this topic, uh, interested in this medical problem. Now, in New Zealand, we've got 1.9 million sufferers. 
with the with the problem. And after one year, we stopped this campaign because uh, 484,000 New Zealanders had clicked on, so a quarter of every, everyone had clicked on these ads three or four times. And it was a simple message saying, you know, a new product, a new solution for an age old problem. But what was more amazing was the information that we were starting to get out of the comments that were coming back. It was, people were talking about, could they get one for their partner? So we realized that was something. Um, the value proposition came out of that. It was people talking about anxiety. So we, we realized that actually it's not just being normal. It's this, the thought of the anxiety of being caught at the wrong moment or, you know, not looking mm. forward to going to the toilet or, mm. or it really came through. So we think that we're mitigating the risk in so many ways based on the experiences of another English speaking, um, country, another English speaking market. So, um, the OMG, Omnicom Media Group, have had a look at this and they think we are um, low with our forecasting based on all their experience in the US. So that's where I think the risk is more than anywhere, but I think we've mitigated it pretty well. And I, the other part of it is going with a bigger group like OMG. Tim, thank you very much for talking to MBR. Thank you. Carl Blake is a partner and employment law expert at DLA Piper and is here to talk to NBR this morning about some new guidelines about the use of generative AI in the public sector with ramifications for all employers. Well, Carl, thank you for joining us once again. Why have these been developed? Yes, yeah, so look, I think it's an excellent example of where we've got employment law um, being technologies catching up with it. I remember sort of 15 years ago when social media was making its appearance and everyone thought it was new and different and then people were using Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever and then that started to have employment ramifications. Mm. For instance, what were people saying on their social media accounts that could have impact on their employment and everyone was grappling with how to deal with that and now that's just, that's pretty sorted. Everyone knows the parameters, knows the guardrails. Mm. Now we've got generative AI and yes, some people are far more advanced in their understanding of it. Mm employers are grappling with it, we're seeing it in areas such as um, choosing redundancies, mm. you know, which, which positions could be selected for redundancy. We're seeing it in um, applications for employment where it's where the, the generative AI is going over application forms and making recommendations to the employer as to who should be selected. And while of course that can improve efficiencies and has some benefits, there's some risks mm. such as bias or um, issues of discrimination that can sneak into the the, um, the, the AI engine. So we've got a digital government leadership group that has put together guidelines for the public service. Now, mm. although the, our audience is not all public service, these are guidelines are not specific in the sense that they apply only to the public service. In fact, I think it's the opposite. There are so many takeaways from these guidelines that could be used for all employers. And some of those yeah. are? The, the guidelines are uh, aimed at having these, these guardrails in place. And this there, there, there's a number of recommendations, but I think I've just pulled out some of the key ones. The first is, is relatively obvious, that people should be thinking about developing a policy that covers these matters. Yeah. Look, if they don't, if AI is not on the horizon and they're not using it, well, their employees might be. Yeah. And so even if you don't, as an employer, use AI in a particular way for whatever reason, as part of your business model, as, as how you operate, your employees might be using it and they might be presenting work to you that has been put through a, a like a chat GPT or something, similar engine. So I think it's a matter of employers will need to at least think about a policy. Um, privacy is 
front and foremost uh, uh, an issue here. Mm-hmm. The guidelines talking about making sure you have a privacy impact statement to ensure that you're not going to be breaching anyone's privacy in your organisation or your customers, etc. Um, obvious matters include not using commercially sensitive information, mm-hmm. putting that into the engine. Um, not using tools if you're going to be exporting information to a third party such that there isn't a risk of your commercially sensitive information being used in the algorithms. Um, And I think it's a matter of just ensuring that, particularly if you're using it for decision-making, like as I said, for recruitment or things like that, that you're not allowing a bias to come in that is only selecting certain people or excluding others for reasons that you may not be aware of. You might just get the results and not realise that the AI tool that's been used has filtered out people that shouldn't have been filtered out. Mm, that's interesting because it kind of comes down to you know the quality in the, of the information that's mm. been fed to the AI so Correct. it can make its decisions, right? Correct. Yeah. So I think at this point there's still a, a healthy dose of human elements required to ensure that the decisions and the information that is produced through these highly effective tools mm-hmm. is appropriate. So you sort of alluded to this, but you sort of do think there will be wider applications of these particular guidelines, either by individual companies or perhaps, you know, could it even reach legislation eventually? Well, possibly. that You could be regulated. It's still um, horizon gazing. Mm. But the, the fact that these guidelines are in place is at least alerting for instance, what we were talking about shortly, the things having guidelines about like not non-discrimination, etc., they could um, either be fit for purpose in the sense that the current discrimination gui- uh, legislation we have mm. is, is sufficient to capture this, but it's just a bit harder to prove it. Mm. Um, it's very easy, potentially, to prove that someone's been discriminated against by reason of their sex or age, etc., but if an AI tool has made the decision and the employer adopts it, that gets a bit murky. Mm. Another topic you wanted to touch on was Elizabeth Kirikiri's amendments to the Human Rights Bill. What has been proposed here? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I, I'm um, expecting there not to be a great deal of opposition to this. Mm. Um, it is another great example of, of the law catching up to reality. Mm. So... As we all know, the Human Rights Act currently has uh, various grounds of discrimination, and they include sex and sexual orientation. Mm. Um, Sexual orientation is explicitly defined as being heterosexual, homosexual, lesbian, or bisexual Mm. only. And, of course, we all know that that's not the limits of what can be uh, the basis for discrimination. So Mm. this bill effectively proposes two new grounds to be added to that list, not not substitution for, but added to it. Mm. The first one is gender identity. And the second one is variation of sex characteristics. So just to unpack that a bit, the definition of gender identity or expression means things like your self-identified gender, your name, your pronouns, um, Mm -hmm. appearance or or mannerisms. Um, And um, variations of sex characteristics is your physical, hormonal or genetic features. So it's clearly aimed at, at... allowing a wider group of people who haven't been specifically given and have afforded the protections of the Human Rights Act much greater access to it. Mm. Um, it's it's just an, an excellent way of, of realising that society is evolving. These issues have, already, have always been around, but the spotlight has been on um, greater protections for a wider variety of people for many years and the Human Rights Act catching up. Just an example yeah. of the law really just catching up, like you say. Correct, right? yeah. correct. And I think this is why, unless there's some... 
which I haven't seen. There's no particular red flags with the drafting. Obviously, the devil is in the detail when these things go through select committee. But mm. conceptually, just like with the extinction of the personal grievance timeframes for, for involving sexual harassment, mm. perfect example of where that was not opposed. That was widely supported. Um, it took a little bit longer than expected. It went through unopposed effectively and it became law. Mm. I see the same happening with this. It's something that you would be bold to oppose unless there was a real problem with the drafting that needed to be fixed. But philosophically, um, it would have to be supported. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you for your time, Carl. That's wonderful. Thank Thank you. you. NBL basketball franchise, the New Zealand Breakers, have a new naming rights sponsor on the back of a resurgent season on the court in which they made the competition's postseason for the first time in several years. I'm joined by New Breakers Chief Executive, Lisa Edser. Lisa, what can you tell us about the new sponsorship deal? Firstly, thanks for having me. Um, very excited to share that we have just negotiated a naming rights, a multi-year naming rights deal with Bank of New Zealand. Um, coming on board as part of their uh, overall um, strategy with basketball um, and looking to connect not only um, in the elite level but the community grassroots level of basketball. Because they recently announced a, a, a sponsorship of the Northern Kahu, was it? Or? That's right, yeah, right. the Northern Kahu and the NZ Women's NBL competition. Yep. Um, also partnering with us and uh, they are also have a community or a grassroots initiative with Basketball New Zealand called mm-hmm. Kiwi Hoops that they are announcing at the same time. So the previous major, major sponsor was Sky Sport. That deal was four years ago-ish, four roughly. Four years, yep, that's right. What... Um, what do you think the bre- makes the breakers an attractive proposition to a to a commercial entity wanting to <laughs> wanting to sponsor? Um, I, you know, th- look, no one can deny the growth of basketball. Mm. Um, it's one of the fastest growing sports, particularly um, for school age children. Um, incredibly accessible. Uh, it's it's indoors entertainment, which always attracts you know people, uh, particularly in our our mm-hmm. current uh, climate. Um, but I think it's just that it has such a broad audience and therefore you're able to make genuine connections across the board. That's particularly one of the, the most attractive things for BNZ in this situation. Um, I would just mention Sky Sport, incredible partner for four years, two very tough years through COVID mm-hmm. and they stuck beside us and they haven't gone from our family of, of partners. Uh, they are committed to being the broadcast partner for New Zealand for the um, NBL competition and we'll also be working with them um, on community initiatives, which is where they want to sort of focus their their attention this season. So do you have commercial partners lining up this time around, or <laughs> was there a lot we, of interest? In- there was. I mean, a fantastic return to the court last season, mm-hmm. and it definitely uh, got people's interest up. We had a number of approaches, which is quite unusual and yep. very um, pretty special in the current economic climate. So, you know, we were very fortunate in that space and we have a couple of other uh, deals in the works at the moment that we hope will come through in the next mm-hmm. uh, week to two weeks and hope to have a full sponsorship stable for this season. Is it is it all on the back of that on-the-court success from last year, do you think, or do you think there's more, more to it than that? Um, look, for sure, on-court success helps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people love winners. Mm-hmm. I think another aspect that's really important about the breakers is that we are an entertainment product. Win or lose, you know, my goal is that people leave a breakers game and they feel that they've had incredible value for money in terms of entertainment. They're happy, they're smiling, mm-hmm. and the on-court result is neither 
you know, it's neither here nor there. It's it's kind of the added bonus if we win. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, when you're a winning team, you get more followers. Um, people people love winners, so it definitely makes a change. I think though, um, people are are coming back to entertainment, to wanting to do things differently post COVID. Mm. Um, there's there's just more interest in getting out and spending your discretionary dollar in a way that delivers back to you. And I think that we do that with with what we do on game day. Do you think it reflects as well what sports people are following in New Zealand more broadly as well? I mean, it does seem like basketball is going through a, a bit of a popularity surge at the moment. Absolutely, um, without a doubt. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're also doing at the moment, we, we've we've got personalities in the breakers. We have a very strong personality in Modi Mayor, our coach. We have, um, we had great personalities in our import players last year and we have some exciting personalities coming through this season. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when you see those personalities, it's a lot easier to identify and, and follow your team, create that genuine connection. And of course we have, you know, our, our Kiwi heroes and yep. Tom Abercrombie and Finn Delaney coming back. And I think that makes a big difference as well. So it was the most successful season on the court for the franchise for a few years. I mean, how has that been reflected in the business? Ticket sales up, revenue up, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting one in mm. terms of, you know, ticket sales and revenue. The beginning of our season was slow, without a doubt, and that's not a surprise, nor is it that when we started winning, winning. and it looked like <laughs> we were making it to the finals that, yeah. that we got more interest um, so yes, we got additional revenue that the, probably the most exciting thing for me was that the repeat visits, you know, we got that engagement and people coming back time after time. Mm. Um, we've seen that reflected in membership sales, which are, are significantly higher this season for new members than they have been before. And that, you know, that's, that's pretty exciting because membership is something that is kind of fading these days you know mm. you don't it's it's a big commitment to say I'm going to come to 10 games out of 14 so yeah. you know it, it definitely we saw that reflected there is uh so as you transition from COO to CEO is is revenue growth driving more commercial opportunities a big part of your remit obviously Look, one of the biggest thing well, the, the biggest pillar for us is is growing our fan base mm. and I mean, that, that sounds fairly obvious, but by growing our fan base, we are able to then achieve all the other targets that come with that. You know, the more people that are engaged with your brand, you know, the more following you get, <clears throat> excuse me, then naturally you get those other financial benefits that come with it. Hmm. Um, probably where I will be focusing more that different to now is around our big picture strategy. So we're not only the breakers basketball team that you see on court in the NBL season, you know, uh, we very much want to grow the sport of basketball within New Zealand and we want to make a difference in the community. Mm. And so my focus will be on ways that we can, that we can do that. Any ideas as to how you do that yet? Or? <laughs> well, thankfully BNZ also have that same right. ambition to yep. really make a difference mm. in the community. So mm. For, from that perspective, they're a fantastic partner for us and a great vehicle for reaching a a, a bigger audience. Mm. Um, they have touch points, you know, from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South. And so together, I think, you know, there will be some great initiatives we can come up with around community basketball and, um, you know, delivering breakers programs across New Zealand. There's obviously been things like TV series and sort of signing up, being quite keen to sign up international players and the links through former CEO Matt Walsh and things like that. I mean, has that been a big part of it as well and will continue to be, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I 
real, we have two NBA games this season um, yep. in October, um, and that will bring our total of NBA games that we've played in the six years that I've been with the club to five. And I was talking with Matt this morning, and that's actually where the, that will be the most games played by anybody external to the NBA against an NBA team. And that's a pretty big achievement for little old New Zealand. Yep. Um, those things we absolutely don't want to change. They um, open doors and really help us grow the awareness of the NBL league, which is fantastic. So don't see any changes there just because I'm uh, in the hot seat. <laughs> Lisa, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.